Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 3. As I mentioned in the last episode, the common assumption here is that all eight of these night visions happened on the same evening. Uh, they're a box set, like the complete set of Marvel movies or the complete set of Star Wars movies. And as such, they tell a developing story. The first vision in chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, makes the point that God is large and in charge. He is sovereign. He knows what is happening in the world. He is receiving reports from those messenger horses. He, he is understanding. He knows what's going on. He is in the know. And he loves his people. And so the message in the first vision is that even if there are some ups and downs, we can trust that the overall plan will serve the end of his glory and our everlasting good. The second vision, recorded in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, adds to that by saying that God has a plan to punish and pay back every global power that has opposed and harassed his chosen people. In the third vision, we learn that God has big plans for Israel. He was thinking way bigger than they were thinking. They were thinking local. He was thinking global. They were thinking about buildings and land. He was thinking about nations and people groups. Now, they weren't wrong for focusing on those small things, but God wants them to understand that out of those small things would grow something bigger and better than they could ever imagine. God was going to grow something truly cosmic, and he was going to take personal responsibility for their success and safety. Now, here in chapter 3, we're introduced to the fourth night vision, the vision of the trial and restoration of Joshua the high priest. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now, as you're visualizing this, I guess the first decision you have to make has to do with the identity of the accuser in verses 1 and 2. The ESV has obviously decided to make the connection with the entity we know as Satan. But the Hebrew literally just says the accuser or the Satan. The word Satan literally just means accuser. So our understanding of the devil as the accuser of the brethren is the reason why we sometimes refer to the devil as Satan. But technically, that's not a name. That's a role. In every trial in that culture, there was an accuser, what we would call today the prosecuting attorney or the state's attorney. So Zechariah might just be saying, I saw a courtroom and there was a judge, a plaintiff and a prosecutor. 
But given that this is a heavenly courtroom, and given what we know from the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, and also what we learn in Revelation 12, verse 10, which says that before the victory of Christ, the devil was always in the courtroom of God, accusing the people of God, putting all that together, I think it makes actually a fair bit of sense to visualize this prosecuting attorney as the actual devil, as the great Satan. So Zechariah sees a vision of the devil prepared to accuse Joshua the high priest. Now, to be clear, in the Old Testament, the high priest stands as a representative of the people as a whole, of the priesthood as a whole. So this is not just about Joshua. This is about the entire nation. The devil is prepared to argue that the entire priesthood, the entire covenant project should be discontinued based on the gross sin and idolatry of the people. But before he can even get a word out, the Lord rebukes him. He says that I have chosen this people and I have saved a remnant out of exile. So you just shut your mouth and don't you dare say a single word about things that happened in the past. And that's the last we hear from the Satan. No one talks back to God in his courtroom. Now, as verse 3 says, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So we do have a bit of a problem here. The devil wasn't wrong. The, the people have disqualified themselves by their sinful and corrupt practices. The evidence is undeniable. They're wearing it. In fact, the word used there for filthy is actually quite a bit stronger than most English translations are prepared to deal with. Uh, Mick Comiskey, for example, says that the Hebrew word used here connotes more than merely soiled, for its related nouns refer to human excrement and vomit. Closed quote. So the people are maximally soiled by their sin and idolatry. What are we going to do about that? How, how in the world can these people be cleansed and restored to useful service? Now, interestingly, the mechanics or rationale is not explained here. Rather, there is just a sovereign declaration. Remove the filthy garments from him. And so that there can be no confusion as to the meaning of this symbolic action, the angel goes on to explain it in straightforward, unambiguous prose. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So most immediately then, the meaning of the vision is that God, in his sovereign mercy, has decided to forgive and obliterate the guilt of the people's sins. It isn't that the exile paid for the sins. Remember, Joshua was still filthy, even though he had been brought out of the exile. So the exile didn't satisfy the just requirement of God in that sense. Rather, this appears to be an illustration of sovereign grace. Kenneth Barker sees it that way. He says, theologically, there seems to be a picture here of the negative aspect of what God does when he saves a person. Negatively, he takes away sin. Positively, he adds or imputes to the sinner saved by grace his own divine righteousness, closed quote. So this is a picture of what it looks like for a person or a group of people to be saved. Sin is taken away and righteousness is imputed. Old Testament and New, that's what saving grace does. It takes something away and it puts something else in its place. Thanks be to God. Now, Someone might ask, on what basis can God do this? I mean, doesn't this make a mockery of justice? How can God just wave away sin? 
Well, that's a fair question. And, and it's a question that's not answered in the Bible until we come to the cross of Calvary. There we see not just a demonstration of God's love, but also a demonstration of God's justice. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 25 to 26 says, speaking about the cross of Christ, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, close quote. Did you hear that? Paul says that the cross was to show God's righteousness because someone up in heaven might have asked, wait a second, on what basis is Abraham the liar up here in the presence of God? On what basis is David the adulterer and murderer up here in the presence of God? Or, or on what basis is Joshua the high priest up here? On what basis are all of these sinful, idolatrous exiles up here in heaven in the presence of God. How is that right? How is that just? How is that how is it fair for you to just wipe away all their sins as if they never happened? Somebody might ask that question. That question hung up in the air as it were until the moment when Jesus ascended the cross on the rock of Calvary and then all of a sudden every mouth was shut and every tongue stopped because now Everyone knew the answer to that question. At the price of God's own son, that's how. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Close quote. That's Romans 3.26. Now, can anyone say that the price God paid wasn't true, fair, and just? No. Absolutely not. A fair and just price was paid for the sins of all God's people, praise the Lord. Now, it is claimed on the basis of faith. And faith in the Old Testament was about looking forward through the signs, anticipations, and means of grace that God provided. Whereas faith in the New Testament is about looking backwards through the person and work of Christ. But either way you're looking, the focus of that faith is the same. And we're going to see further evidence of that in this passage in just a few verses. But for now, just to wrap up this section of the vision, notice in verse 5 that Zechariah actually enters into the drama in this scene. He sees Joshua being forgiven and restored, and he understands the implication of that for the people as a whole. So he gets fired up, and he says, let them put a clean turban on his head. Let's go all the way, Lord. Let's restore all the dignity, all the glory, all the honor associated with this office and calling. And it was done. Look at verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now, here we have another example of this wonderful balance that we find in the Bible between the unconditional and the conditional or you might say between sovereign grace and human responsibility. There's an awful lot of free and undeserved grace in this vision. We've already talked about that. Joshua was forgiven as a free, sovereign act of God. Praise the Lord. There were no conditions. There was no work or, or decision or merit on Joshua's part. It was just done. It was given. It was grace. But now here in verses 6 and 7, there are conditions. There's something for Joshua to do. 
He is told that if he walks in God's ways, and if he keeps to his charge, that is to say, if he is morally upright and attentive to his duties, then he will enjoy increased authority and intimate access among those who are standing here. That's a bit of a tricky phrase, though, that among those who are standing here. We'll come back to that in just a minute. The clear and obvious meaning of this vision is that Joshua in particular and the people of Israel in general are being restored to the priestly role that they were commissioned to fulfill back in Exodus 19, 5-6. Listen to the wording of that passage and you'll hear a number of intentional similarities. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Close quote. That's Exodus 19, 5 to 6. So, obviously, this vision here in Zechariah is communicating to Zechariah and through him to the people as a whole that they're being given a fresh start. They're going to get a do-over. Praise the Lord. And of course, as Bible readers, this is one of those scenes in the Old Testament that gets us thinking about Jesus. When we hear conditions like these, when, when God says to human beings in the Old Testament, you know, if you obey and if you are faithful in your duties and responsibilities, then you will enjoy authority and intimate access. Right away, we're thinking, oh man, I know how this is going to go, right? How in the world is this going to turn out any different than the last time? Like this is a do-over, okay, but you remember how we did it the first time, right? Like last time, Aaron, the first high priest, here we got Joshua, the high priest, and he said, here's a do-over. You get to be the new Aaron. Do you remember the original Aaron? The original Aaron corrupted the priesthood literally while it was being communicated to Moses up on the mountain. It, it lasted literally five minutes in its pure and uncorrupted form. So why should we expect anything better this time? And, and like I said, that gets us thinking about Jesus because Jesus comes and does for Israel what Israel could never do for itself. J Jesus is the king that David could never be. Jesus is the prophet that Elijah couldn't be. And Jesus is the high priest that Aaron couldn't be and that Joshua couldn't be. And by being all of that and doing all of that, he makes available to us all the associated blessings and promises that's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, close quote. Remember back when God promised Joshua, and, and by extension, all of us, authority and intimacy. Those were the blessings and the promises that were on the table if Joshua, in this restart, in this redo, if he was morally upright and if he attended to his duties. And, of course, we know how that story works out. The priesthood did not keep to this path. All of those promises and blessings were squandered. But the good news is that Jesus did that. He, he walked that path perfectly. And therefore, all the promises of God, all the promised blessings that we've been longing for, including authority and intimacy, the blessings that are on the table here, all of those things find their yes in him, find their yes in Jesus. And that is why we utter our amen to God for his glory. Praise the Lord. All right, that's all the clear and obvious stuff in this glorious passage. And that leaves us with a little tricky bit at the end. 
which says, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Well, what does that mean? Who, who is the you? Who, who are the other people who are standing here? What does this all mean? There are a variety of possible interpretations. But for the sake of time, I'll just walk you through the main two. First of all, it could mean that if Joshua is morally upright and faithful in his role and responsibility, then he, as high priest, will have intimate access among those who have access to God in his holy court, which would be other angels. So the promise is that Joshua will have the access of the angels, as it were. I think that's the simplest and most likely interpretation. There's another option, though, that I think should be categorized as somewhat plausible. Mark Boda, for example, thinks that this refers to the ministry of prophets. Prophets have the access of angels. Prophets can hear and see things in the heavenly court. And so what God is promising here is that if Joshua holds up his side of the bargain, then he will be blessed with and helped by the ministry of faithful and inspired prophets who will bring him and all the people the word of the Lord. So these things are being tied together, right? If, if the priesthood is faithful, then they will be supported by faithful prophets. You can decide for yourself which of those options is more likely. We need to move on to the last paragraph in the vision report, starting in verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, closed quote. We'll do this one verse by verse because there's a lot going on here. First of all, in verse 8, Joshua is told that his associates are men who are for a sign, closed quote. So it seems like this courtroom picture seems to be getting bigger and bigger all the time. We started with a judge, a prosecutor, and a defendant. Then we learned that the heavenly courtroom was filled with angels and that either Joshua himself or his prophetic colleagues were going to have access like them, access of the angels, if Joshua was faithful to his covenant obligations. Now here, we're learning that Joshua has friends with him. We assume other priests. He's the high priest. So we assume that these are junior priests. And we're being told that they are men who are a sign. What does that mean? It appears to mean that the priesthood in general, which has just been restored through God's gracious act, will serve as a sign and anticipation of something or someone who is to come. Well, obviously, that's Jesus. The vision is saying that the priesthood will continue, in part, because it establishes some of the categories and concepts that will come to fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. In the second part of verse 8, the sign associated with these men, the sign of the priesthood, is pointing forward to something referred to as my servant, the branch. Now, this symbol of the branch is very well established in the scriptures. In Isaiah 11:1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, closed quote. So the idea here is that out of the fallen tree of Israel, out of the house of Jesse, who of course was David's father, so really out of the house of David, a shoot is going to grow up, a twig, that will become a fruit-bearing branch, just like God intended from the beginning. 
This imagery is picked up again in Jeremiah 23, 5-6, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Close quote. Those words are repeated almost verbatim in Jeremiah 33, 15 to 16. I won't read them again just for the sake of time, but the point is, this was a common bit of imagery in Old Testament times associated with the Messiah. Israel has fallen, but out of that dead tree will come new life. A shoot, a twig, a branch will grow up and bear fruit unto God, praise the Lord. So this is intended as an encouragement. Joshua must have been thinking... (laughs) This nation is as good as dead. What what am I ruling over here anyway? We don't even have a temple. We're just a bunch of refugees at this point trying to rebuild our homes, doing a few services in the ruins. And God says, okay, good. Because now that the tree is fallen, we can bring forth the twig. We can call forth the sprout. We can raise up the branch who will give new life and new hope to the entire project. So this is good news. All right, now let's look at verse 9. In verse 9, we're told that a stone is set before Joshua. It is a stone with seven eyes. But actually, most commentators will tell you that the Hebrew word for eye can also mean spring. So it could be a stone with seven eyes or a stone with seven springs. You'll see various translations rendering it in various ways. And what you think the symbol means will obviously depend on whether you're visualizing when you read the verse, a stone with seven eyes or a stone with seven springs. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary goes with the spring idea. It sees the stone as another way of talking about Messiah parallel to the branch, which we just talked about a minute ago, and understands the stone as being like the cornerstone of the ultimate temple. And also in terms of the seven springs idea as being like the rock in the wilderness that provided water in the desert, a rock that the Apostle Paul identified with Christ. So, I mean, this there's a lot of sense to this idea. In Ezekiel, you think of the, the, the temple, the rock of the temple, actually giving forth a life-giving river. The Apostle Paul does make that connection with the rock in the desert. So I think maybe the Tyndale commentary is onto something here. It says, the branch, like Moses and Joshua, will act in a representative capacity remove the guilt of the land, and bring true prosperity, close quote. So again, they're seeing the stone as adding a little bit, fleshing out a little bit, this symbol of the branch. The branch is a tree, but it's also like a stone that that has life-giving water within it. That's how they're seeing it. But others go with the imagery of the seven eyes. They think that the stone is saying something else entirely about the coming Messiah, something parallel, something true but different. So Kenneth Barker, for example, says here, the seven eyes then speak of the fullness of the Holy Spirit or of the Godhead and are symbolic of infinite intelligence and omniscience. Again, I'll let you decide which of these interpretations seems more plausible. As I've already said, I like the seven springs idea. I love the imagery of Christ as cornerstone and the rock that destroys the nations, but that also brings the world back to life by releasing springs of living water. And Jesus did use that imagery in reference to himself in John 7. So I think that's it. 
And yet at the same time, obviously, I believe Jesus is God and that he therefore possesses infinite intelligence and omniscience. So maybe Zechariah used a word that can mean either so as to communicate both. Maybe the message is that Jesus is the new tree. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the cornerstone. And Jesus is God. Amen. I can say amen to all that. And that's the beauty of apocalyptic symbolism. You can say an awful lot in just a few pictures. All right, that brings us to verse 10. On that day, the day when the Messiah comes, the new tree, the living water, the new temple, God in the flesh, on that day, in his kingdom, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The idea here is that the curse on the ground will be removed such that there will be universal prosperity and abundance. In straightforward English, the vision is saying that in the kingdom of Messiah, in the new heavens and the new earth, everyone will have enough for themselves and enough to offer hospitality. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 